The following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, you're back. Vacation Jeff is gone. Yeah, you're all cranky again, aren't I you? Know. Right. <laughs> you're well, not gonna, well, since you were going to be cranky, I figured I, I'd get a friend to, to come hang out with you and, to come, and, and to tease come you a little troll bit. troll me, as he decided to tell me? He apparently wanted to come yeah, hang out. Yeah, go ahead, introduce him. Keith Pompey, we've missed you. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing, I'm doing well. I mean, Ohio State's number one, bro. But other than that, it's it, cool. You is know, that why people, you wanted to come on today? <laughs> uh, that's ex- that's exactly why he, uh, he, he I volunteered. Wanted to come on talk about, I wanted to come on and talk about Rutgers football. Yeah, hey, Keith, I got a story for you. Um, they used $450,000 for DoorDash uh, last year for Rutgers. So they wow. were they they were eating well up in uh, New Brunswick up yeah, there. So. Probably healthy foods, too. Yeah, it's all but, good. What's up with the trainer's table? Like, don't, you know, normally the athletes, like, want to go to the trainer's table. Have you seen them play? They're not training. Hey, easy. This was not a Rip Rutgers interview, okay? <laughs> Can we talk about some basketball stuff we, or Kenny Pickett's hand we, size? Well, whatever you want to talk about. Well, actually, before we get to basketball, we have to have the Kenny Pickett discussion because over my vacation, I kept getting text messages about Kenny Pickett. No matter what he does, this guy could have a Hall of Fame career. Not that he's going to. Keith will never be happy. There is no way. So, Keith. I propose a bet, okay? So you like you like to talk a little trash, especially regarding the Eagles and the Giants. And and Kenny Pickett's hand size is about 8.5 inches. So I think that you should take the over on the Giants winning eight, more than 8.5 games. <laughs> you going to do it? You going to do it? And if you lose, you have to wear Kenny Pickett jersey are you, are and his all, gloves. Yeah, you all talk or are you, you in on this? Now, that's a lot of games. <laughs> Come on. You, and, and if you're wrong, you have to wear a Kenny Pickett jersey and, and a size small gloves all day long. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going to take that. Keith, wow. Keith, you got to know, Jeff's Jeff been working on this since he found out you were going to join us. He was like, well, what are we going to do? We got to go up with a bet. We could do three and a half. <laughs> no way, man. His hands aren't that small. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> All right, He's Jeff. Third string quarterback. You want to move it to the basketball talk, Jeff? Go ahead. All right. Yeah. Keith, schedule release this week. Uh, uh, you can predict the season for me now. What's the Sixers record going to be? Come on. That's what uh, we do now, right? Hot take. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I still think that they're going to be one of the top teams in the East. I mean, the schedule is crazy the way they. The way it's matched up, especially down the stretch, but I, I think there's still a lot of bad basketball teams in the NBA. To whereas the 76ers are, are still going to be in the upper echelon, and I do think they have talent. Um, but to put a number on it, I, I think they could hover around what um, 49, maybe. 50 oh, I didn't minutes. think I'd actually get a prediction from him. I just was oh, going to give him okay. a hard time. I'll take it, Keith. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. they've they've got 13 back to backs. 17 weekend home games. You'll get to travel a little bit in January. Uh, eight days and five games, their longest road trip. Their longest homestand is seven games over 15 days in December. But March is is kind of brutal. March and April, who they have to play. Uh, it's going to be tough coming down the stretch for that team. Yeah, it is, man. It, it, March and it, that's going to be a stretch. Like at one point, I think in, in March, I think they have 15 games in March and 12 of them are on the road. 
But even still, like I, I think, like when you bring when you bring in the Sixers team together, right? You know, uh, you have James Harden who's saying that he's found the fountain of youth, that that he's found his shot, he's in better shape, and then you bring in PJ Tucker that's bringing toughness. Well, we're going to find out quick, fast, in a hurry, just how tough this team is, and if James can play. Um, the thing is, you open up at Boston. Then you come home against uh, Milwaukee. You play the Spurs. You play the Pacers. And then you go on a two-game series in Toronto. And then the second game of that game is the first of a back-to-back with Toronto and at Chicago. So if I'm the Sixers, I'm like, come on, NBA. Like, what are you doing here? Because as we know, the people in Philly, if they struggle – then all of a sudden people are going to start saying, I thought y'all said James was better. I thought you said PJ was tough. What about Doc? He has to go. So, you know, it's like, it's a tough stretch for the 76ers early on. Well, there's two health-related issues that you've already just brought up. One, Toronto, are they going to be shorthanded again or is everybody going to be vaccinated? Because it looks like Toronto, Canada is going to have the same issues. And second of all, with this fountain of youth, is if he's found it, is Harden going to spread this around to all the other old guys they just signed? <laughs> that's a great. <laughs> that's a great. That's a, Jeff that's came a back question. with jokes, Keith. You know, I know he came back with like boom, 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 boom. I, I, I think like, I mean, that's a, that's a great question because when you look at Toronto, they're a bunch of young guys. You look at Boston, they're young. Milwaukee, you know, they're veterans, but they're just not. They're like. They're like in their late twenties, you know what I mean. So um, I, I think that could be a problem for them, you know. In, in the and in like with the way the games are now, typically you think that that could be a problem later on in the season, and there are going to be times where you know it's not going to impact them. But I just think that playing so many games, we're going to find out just how these guys are. I mean, think about it. Like Joel Embiid is he is. You know, is he going to be able to play back to backs, you know, after dealing with that hand situation? You know, so it, it's just going to be a lot of unanswered questions that we're going to find out. When you mentioned back to backs, five of those 13 back to backs come in that final month and a half. So load management is going to be something this team is looking at coming down the stretch. Now, at the start of the season, they, they've got a couple dates of interest. Um, are you going to be marking your calendar for November 22nd to celebrate Ben Simmons' return to Philadelphia, Keith? You know what? Um, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's going to be exciting to see what it is. Is he on but the court, I, Keith? It, it on the court, but on the court. But but here's wait, wait, wait. Is he wearing a uniform? Yes, on the is court? he on the court? Oh, I, mean, I think he'll be on the court. I, I, I think he'll be on the court. I mean, I, I, I mean, I hope he's on the court. At least for his for sake, him. I hope he's on the court. I mean, I want to see him uh, play. For his sake, I hope he's on the court. Yeah, exactly. And 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 here's the thing. Like, I think like his return kind of is, is like lost his luster. Like, I think if he would have played in in their last season, um, everything would be – everything, you know, we would have had – well, the fans would have had a good a, a good time with it. You know, right about now, you know, it, it, it could backfire. Like, if the Sixers are struggling um, and losing that game, it could be the same way it was last time where they, they stop booing him and start booing uh, the Sixers. So – you know, I mean, again, a big game, but I think that it would have had more oomph if it, if it happened last season. Yeah, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about with regard to the schedule is the NBA's decision not to schedule any games on Election Day. 
How important is it that the NBA is doing this and, and continuing to use its platform to, to deal with social justice issues and the issues that are to benefit the community? You know, I, I think this is huge. Um, I think this is something that you, you know, you're, you're actually surprised that it hasn't happened before. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there are certain days where, I mean, certain people, I'm not saying they take off work, but, you know, they make sure they get up early and they do a lot of things so they can get out and vote. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's, I, I guess voting in this country is one of those things where you find out, like you assume everybody votes, but then you later on, you find out having discussions with people like, nah, man, this is the first time I voted. And you're like, what, what? <laughs> so I, I think for, for the NBA, you know, the NBA is talking about all the causes that they want. And, you know, being an African-American, um, you find out that, a lot of our people in our community hadn't voted before in, or in a long time. And the NBA is, is all about now, you know, trying to uplift the black community, trying to get people out there voting. I think this is a huge message for, for you know, African-Americans, minorities and all people, you know, to make sure that you make this a priority and get out there and vote. You know, one, one other thing about that is, is, is somebody that covers the NBA as much as you do, how proud are you that you get to cover a league that's proactive as opposed to we're going to talk later on about a league like the NFL that is always behind the times with figuring these things out? You know what? I, I, I am. I mean, I, I am. You know, I'm, I'm proud of, of, of that. I mean, you look at, you know, David, what David Stern started and then you see what the players are saying now. You know, it's kind of it it was one of those things where I mean, honestly, you know, David Stern did start it. But we if we want to be real with this, it all really took uh, one up to another level when the Milwaukee Bucks and I believe it was the Orlando Magic or was it the Orlando Magic? But I, I, I know it's the Milwaukee Bucks when they walked off the floor and they refused to play that game. And then you remember that they had the meeting and then all of a sudden. They just start having, you know, these committees for social justice, you know, committees for this, coaches getting involved. So I, I think that, you know, yes, David Stern started it, um, you know, the, the current commissioner, he followed up. But I think when the players did that stuff, it kind of opened up people's eyes to a lot of things. The cool thing it creates, too, is the night before on November 7th, you're going to have all 30 NBA teams playing where they're out there promoting to their fans the importance of having a day of action the next day. They're not going to tell you who to vote for. They're going to tell you to get out there and vote, make your voice heard. And for the amount of people that don't watch the news, but do follow an athlete, that do watch the highlights, to see it in a different medium, having worked in politics in my prior life and having people told me to my face over and over again, they had never voted before, what was the point? To see leagues out there talking about what the point is, to, to have athletes who have found themselves in situations that have caused them to be activists because they did nothing other than were born makes this an issue that is larger than just whether or not you play basketball games. But it's going to be good business because it's going to make excitement around those days for the NBA too. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and I, you know, it's one of those things where, um, especially I didn't even think about that because the, the day before is going to be that a lot of make sure you get out and vote. And, and, you know, we, we, we talk about, like I said before, I mean, it was one of those things where how many times like we, we had a friend, maybe even a close friend or a colleague where you like, I know this guy votes. And then you go out, you might have a couple of drinks with them and they're like, nah, man, 
what's the point? You know, like, as you said, so, you know, I, I think this is um, great. It, I think it's bigger than what most people think because, it, you know, the average person is like, ah, uh, you know, what's the point? Why are they taking off? We vote anyway. Well, no, everyone it's, it's, does. It's not meant for the person who votes anyway. It's meant for the exactly. people who aren't voting to try and get them to vote because everybody does better when everybody makes their voice heard. Bingo. Bingo. Oh. Okay. All right, so so now now let's get back to the Sixers for a second. Is the team that we see now, the roster that we see now, the team that we're going to see on opening day? That's all I'm holding it to. <laughs> or 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 is this, you know, the big splash organization, are they going to continue to try to or at least float this idea out there that Kevin Durant's going to make this team even older? You know what? I, I think that this is going to be... <laughs> See, I he think likes the way you asked that question. I know, I know, right? I tried not to laugh, right? I tried to, I tried to like, oh. Okay. As the oldest person on this call. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but, um, but, but, you know, I, 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 I think that the team that we see now is going to be the team that we're going to, that we're going to see in opening day. I mean, I, I think that when Kevin Durant and um, Deant, I'm not, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell. I think when those two guys, like, basically, word got out that they want to be traded or were being shot, I think it slowed up a lot of stuff in the NBA where a lot of people were holding on to their assets, including the 76ers, to see what they can do and what they could get, right? But I think right about now, with it being a month out, um, and we, we still don't have any traction on KD, um, you know, Donovan Mitchell, you're starting to hear some things maybe heating up a little bit, but I feel as if that right now you're looking at it like it might be a little bit too late to do what you want to do. Now you can still do something, but I think the KD thing is holding everything up. So I I, I do believe that this, the roster that, well, the guys that we see now are going to be the guys on the opening day roster, but that's not to say that, you know, it could change shortly after that. Um, You know, uh, but I do think that right now, this is what we're going to see. All right, look, we we know you got to go. However, you're going to take this bet. And if, since you're not willing to take it yourself and not willing to stand up for your Giants, I'm going to take the hit right now. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take the over, the Giants 8.5. And if I'm wrong, you still have to wear a Kenny Pickett jersey and small gloves for a day. The best part is I can see Keith thinking about whether this is actually yeah, a that. good thing or if <laughs> Jeff just like lawyered him into not understanding what no, he agreed I, to. Jeff doesn't even know who's going to be the starting quarterback. You know I love the Giants, but you don't know who's going to be the starting quarterback. We don't know if, if Saquon's going to make it to week five. Right? So, week like, five? I was talking getting through the preseason. I know. I know. Right? But – but all, all I know is it looks like Terod Taylor is pushing him, <laughs> pushing our quarterback. So. All right. Well, guess what? We get to start hopefully reading Keith Pompey at uh, the Inquirer real soon. Pompey on Sixers. Where else can we get you? Oh, you can also uh, get me on the uh, the Locked On 76ers podcast. So you can do that. And I, I guess you also said hit read me real soon. You can uh, read me at Inquirer.com when I get back from vacation. Uh hey. In October 13th. <laughs> Keith, I mean, thanks for spending some of your vacation with us and coming on to give Jeff a hard time. Always appreciate it, man. All right. I'm surprised y'all not talking about that money the Big Ten is making. We oh, we're going to talk about well, it. We, we were will, just trying we'll to do that once you're time. gone. Don't worry. We'll talk <laughs> okay. plenty about it. We're, we're all right. Yeah. Take it easy, Keith. Go blue. All right. <laughs>
I, you know, we we talked to him about using the platform for election day. You know, having my prior life working in politics, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's amazing. I really do. Uh, I think it will make a difference, and you will see areas where voter turnout will go up because athletes are telling people that they should exercise their right to vote. Well, and the question is going to be whether other leagues follow suit. You know, I think the NFL's trying to get there. Didn't they let their stadiums be polling places at one point? Well, or I something? think some of the owners. I, mean, I don't think baseball do is anywhere I, close to it. I mean, hockey's. look, it's a, it's a different ownership group in the NFL. And it's an ownership group that you and I talk about almost monthly, if not week after week, about how reactive and not proactive they are. Well, they gave you more uh, things to talk about how they're reactive this week here in the NFL, Jeff, right? Yeah. I mean, I went through Judge Robinson's ruling. Judge Robinson's ruling, for those who haven't listened, is the person who ushered a ruling yeah, on Deshaun Watson. <laughs> Lots of people don't yeah. know who Judge Ro- – sorry, we're not all lawyers. Yeah. We don't follow Judge Robinson and read the rulings. She is a good judge. Go ahead. Very good yeah. judge. So uh-huh. what did she say about Deshaun Watson? Well, what happened this week and what or do you think about it? Well, the thing is, is that people misunderstand why she only – gave six games as far as a suspension. She felt that what that was all she could do based on prior precedent. And and she thought that the NFL was trying to make up for its prior wrongs and she didn't think that that was her place to be changing that. I I think she should have done that. I think she should have she should have gone further. But be, because there was an appeal process, um I don't think she needed to. The problem, I mean, here's here to me is the NFL in a nutshell. This is part of her ruling. Where she finds, let, let's let make it clear here. Here's what she found. I therefore find that the NFL has carried its burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson engaged in sexual assault as defined by the NFL against four therapists identified in the report. And by the way, the, they only lo- looked at the limited number. They didn't look at the full breadth right. of people It who was made only what they presented. They did not present the other victims what they did is they presented four people and then she found based on the nfl's broad interpretation of this prohibited conduct as reflected in the evidence it chose to present i find that the nfl has carried its burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence that mr watson's conduct posed a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person experience investigating sexual assault cases and and all of that the stunning part of this although i guess we shouldn't be surprised at this point is that the, the, this judge found that the NFL, once again, was not forward-thinking and, and wrote in her opinion, the NFL may be a forward-facing organization, but it is not necessarily a forward-looking one. Yeah, I'm sure that went over really well at the NFL offices <laughs> yeah. when they read that line. But the fact is they had this ruling in their hands. They decided to appeal it, probably because of public pressure, because if they were doing the right thing, and I started to think that, Goodell was starting to do more of the right thing. The way he came out against Ross, I think, was pretty strong, although I think he probably should have come out stronger. But he had the right at that point to make the decision himself. Why, if he had that right, and if he wanted to make a stand here, and, he, go wanted, to the judge. and he wanted to show women that we were standing up for what we thought was right, why didn't he say, I'm going to suspend him for one year, essentially indefinitely, that he has to reinstate himself he has to apply for reinstatement if he does certain things and instead what he did is he punted it to peter harvey who was an attorney general goodell should have made the decision himself and at the end of the day what did they do they came up with an 11 11 game suspension 
$5 million dollar fine. Which I know you don't find significant, but back just in time to play his former team, the Houston Texans, yeah, you and for I TV ratings. Right. You and I, I mean, look. Tell me who's watching Houston-Cleveland if John Watson isn't returning from his uh, suspension to face his other team. Here, I will come back and with egg on my face if that game is the Sunday night or Monday night football game. Oh, it won't if, be. They won't right. want to feature it that way. But I'll come back with egg on my face if it comes out. Like, they have the ability to make it more than 11 games if he doesn't comply and show contrition and do the right. other things, I'll be shocked if he ends up with more than 11 games. But at the end of the day, the NFL screwed up here. The NFL was seeking cover. Again, having worked in politics, I'm really familiar with that. If but somebody, what would have been the harm in just suspending him for the season? Because you, Let him appeal it to a court and let him fight over because it. Because they would rather point to an independent party, and I put that in air Who's quotes. Who's the independent party? Peter Harvey is the independent no, party. No, it's not because say. it was a settlement. But they it agreed wasn't, upon. It wasn't, they it wasn't Harvey's to, ruling. It ended up being a settlement. Because Harvey was going to rule. So they used the third party to push both sides to come to an agreement. Right. But if but Because if, the NFL didn't want the NFLPA to challenge what they were doing. They want to make it go away. Then fine. Let the NFL be in a... If, when you're in the right, when you have a chance to stand up for a wrong, you stand up for the wrong and let other people fight the wrong side of it. If the NFLPA decides that what they need to do is stand up for somebody who's been described to have the conduct that he's been described. I mean, there are some just bizarre things in this. Has anybody lost the fact that he went to all these different therapists and supposedly did all these things during COVID? Like, I have more of a problem that he has no contrition. He has none. Yeah, he, even what he said today, it, it's it, there's there's nothing there, and as part and, of this, yeah. How do you get back? Like, how does he meet do those, those requirements if he's not willing? Like, he seems to be apologizing for the headlines that have been created. He, over he this. seems to be apologizing for the way people feel about what he supposedly did, as opposed to what he actually did. That's not contrition. And so I he's going to have to go to therapy and he and hopefully, you know, people grow through therapy. I understand that settlements aren't always admitting guilt, but mm-hmm. you did settle something. So there's some admission that you did something. You paid well, 20 no, people. No, as an attorney, that's not necessary. Tell me what it true. is. He you paid 20 you, you, people. You settle people for you settle things for lots of different reasons. But this is not this isn't like the civil settlement that I'm used to dealing with. The, what he did, and I know it's a civil settlement, you know, Essentially, but the problem here is this was a wrong that the NFL had a chance to stand up for what was right. And when you have that opportunity, you just don't let that opportunity go around because you had nothing. The NFL had nothing to lose. The, ne- the NFL never misses a chance to miss a chance. Right. <laughs> it's just regularly what they do. Yeah. They lead from behind all the time. You and, go, even recently with the settlement, what they, did, they did the rescoring for the minority alumni football players who got the settlement because they were used poor scores on it. They were not proactive with that. They challenged that for years. That was going to come out. That was never going to stay hidden. Instead of getting in front of that, they tried to stop it. All they should do is get in front of some of these things and they'd be much better off. And and this one was easy. All you had to do was suspend him and let them fight it. And if a court later on said that you can't do that, then you can stand up and say, we did what we wanted to do. We believed that we did what was right. We did what we thought was right. And somebody else told us we couldn't do it for whatever technical reason that we couldn't do it. That's the easy the the easiest thing to do was the right thing to do. So does he play on Sunday against the Eagles? 
because he's not going to play for 11 what, games. In the, in the and preseason he's, game? <clears throat> well, he's in camp. Yeah. He was taking second string reps in the team workouts there. I guess he does. And he's not going to play for 11 games. So do you get him game reps in the preseason now because he's not going to play in the regular season? Yeah, the Browns. I mean, it's a silly question to ask, but are we going to see him out on the field on Sunday against when the Philadelphia Eagles? During his suspension, is he allowed to practice with the team? I don't know. Or I, does he have to stay away from the facility? I'm, I'm not sure what his... what what well, the terms well that, are that would that. be guidance as to what's going to happen on sunday but i mean look if i'm the browns i don't put him out there where's put where's him the out game? there to do interviews where's it's in game? cleveland where's the game it's in cleveland oh okay because if it was here, no it's in here, cleveland so it's, that's what i'm go. saying it, it, the situation is there where by the way you know that cleveland fans will cheer him mm-hmm. he will he will not get booed there he how will, sad is that he will go out on the I field mean, look you and you and i talk about like i have gone to lots of phillies games and i have I will not root or clap when Odubel Herrera did it. Was on this team, I know. Yeah, I wouldn't do it when but, it's but familiar. But didn't we talk about and there this? there are people that, and this goes to my, what I've been saying for years, He should, the NFL should bar the sale of his jersey because at a minimum, I don't want to see kids wearing his jersey. Didn't we talk about this when the Eagles were talked about potentially getting him? That this is exactly what I didn't want to have to happen right. to my team where I would have to root for him? You don't have to. No, See, I don't anymore. He's not no, on my team. If he was on the Eagles, you have a choice. And well, your choice could have been not to But if you're root rooting for the, for the team, aren't you rooting for the player? Then pick a different team. Don't root anymore. At some point, well, we you all do. have to stand up. You pick different teams. I am so glad yeah. you went there. We've got five minutes left, and the Phillies are playing the Mets this weekend before we hit the break and have our great interview with Dave Marinus. So, the Phillies are playing the Mets this weekend. Yeah. Your son is a genius, okay? Some background. Jeff was a Mets fan growing up. He still mm-hmm. suffers those slings and arrows. He remembers those days fondly. And apparently, he tries well, I also to, remember He tries to follow the Mets on the MLB ballpark app. Yeah. And his son is having none of it. He's removing the Mets from the ballpark app and not telling because, him because that he did share it, an account. Making him yes. think that he is losing his mind that <laughs> this keeps disappearing. So, Jeff, who will you be rooting for this weekend when the Phillies play the Mets? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not answering that You're not question. going to the games is what you're doing. You're <laughs> not right. going there. You're going to pay no attention to the baseball games. So, good childing from your son. Poor parenting from you look, for look, rooting for the Mets. Hey, how about good parenting? <laughs> because I grew up watching the Mets and rooting for the Mets in really You know what? It is good years. parenting. You taught and your son to right or wrong. He sees that you are wrong for following the Mets, and he is writing that wrong. I, I had a kid. I found a way to bond with him, and for while he was here, I did what was good for him. And I, I wish that I could have made him a Mets fan, but when he was four, he threw out my hat. There was nothing I could do about it. See, he's always been on top of this. Yeah, he's always been in charge, is so, what you're saying. So it is a big weekend for the Phillies, though. They'll, they'll open up against the Mets tonight. They will get lucky missing like four of the top five pitchers for the Mets. All they'll face is Chris Bassett tonight. Yeah, they're not going to face DeGrom because he went yesterday. Carrasco is hurt, unfortunately, for the next three to four weeks. They're not going to face Scherzer. They're not going to face Walker, who has back soreness, who is supposed to go tomorrow. Now, unfortunately, Most importantly, the- though, you get to see Bailey Falter. How did that happen? It was destined there to happen. There were four chances for me to see pitchers, three chances not to be Bailey Falter and yeah. one for it to be Bailey Falter. And how do I pick the Saturday night game? And why did Zach Wheeler pitch in the afternoon on Saturday? It was lined up perfect for me to see Wheeler start. I, I strongly don't believe in jinxes. But when it comes to you in sports, 
That's not you, fair. You, you are the test for me. That's not fair. If the Phillies <laughs> lose, it'll be because of Bailey Falter, not because I'm in the building, man. That's not cool. Well, do you? What's your faith level? The in Mets the are not. The, the Mets will win that game. <laughs> what's your faith level in the Phillies at this point? Making it, the playoffs? Well, they're going to make the playoffs. Yes. They're going to make the wild card. So what they're faith the second do you want? Wild card right now. They're sixty-five and fifty-two. Right. They got their ten thousand win, Jeff. Yay. Yeah, but they got their 10,000 <laughs> loss a long, a long time, time ago. <laughs> Do you feel good about where they are? You've got three solid pitchers now. You were right about Ranger. He's strong and pitching yeah. well. Well, the interesting thing about the way you just phrased that is they have three solid pitchers now. They had those three solid pitchers. They went out and got Thor. I don't think that he's going to be starting any games in the playoffs if they make the playoffs. He'll be a four or five pitcher. Yeah. I think Gibson is the I think he's the Thor fifth. The five, which, yeah. which uh, if you have your choice, that's not a bad fifth pitcher to have unless he gets stronger as the season goes on. I just don't see it. But Ranger has gotten strong. Once he came back from that injury, I read you the stats yesterday. His stats have been stellar. Yeah, it would have been great and if you read And he's going some, further into the game. It would be great if you read some of the stats on the RSR listeners. Well, I can't. Tell them that you told me and, in private. <laughs> Look, the fact is we're about to come back from the break and we're going to interview a Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. You want me don't... to reel off some stats on Ranger Suarez now? Well, you could, but, you know, context. That's your so... thing. Why don't you talk about ratings or something else? <laughs> well, look, you know who else has pitched really well? Sir Anthony Dominguez. Yes. I mean, so we both kind of pined for people to be in other positions. You wanted Ranger. I wanted Sir Anthony in there. Having, you wanted Ranger in the bullpen. I did want Ranger in the yeah. bullpen. And I look, I'll admit that I'm wrong. <laughs> which which means you wanted Bailey Falter in the rotation. No, I didn't. I just didn't think Ranger was pitching well. <laughs> and I didn't think Bailey Falter would uh, be the Every time back. you brought up Ranger, what did I say? Okay, go here. here's the roster in the minors. Pick the guy. They're not ready for the majors, but the young guys are moving up. They're up to double A now. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go get excited for Philly's prospects, go to Reading now because... or. Or next, next week, week, go to Lehigh Valley. Go to Lehigh Valley. And you're likely going to be able to see Bryce Harper. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, McCarthy and uh, Ventola have a good time out there at Lehigh Valley with all the media <laughs> requests. <laughs> Enjoy it. Jeff, why don't we hit the break? When we come back, we'll talk about one of the best athletes ever. Stick with us. Sounds good. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825. Repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, let's talk somebody who's probably on the Mount Rushmore of sports, definitely debatable among people who might not agree. David Marinus, an award-winning New York Times bestselling author, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, associate editor of the Washington Post, and author of the new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, joins the show. David, thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Glad to be with you. This is your latest book. You've, you've got some pretty star names on your roster. You've written biographies of Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Roberto Clemente, Vince Lombardi. Uh, let's start there. With those stories that you've already told, why tell the story of Jim Thorpe and, and why now? Well, I sort of consider it the third book in a trilogy of sport, of book, biographies of sports figures who are larger than sports. The first was Lombardi, who, of course, was a fabulous football coach, um, winning five championships in seven seasons. But um, what I wanted to explore in that book was the mythology of competition and success and leadership in American life and what it takes and what it costs. 
Um, so I'm always looking for a great story and something large. With Clemente, it was not just a, a brilliant, beautiful baseball player, but you know, so many uh, athletes are called heroes, and almost none of them are, but Roberto really was. So a chance to write about someone who devoted his life to helping others and died trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua. And I viewed Thorpe in a similar way, you know, as one of the great athletes of all time, um, someone who did unparalleled things. You, you know, you can't compare generations, really. It, it's foolish. But no one else um, had won the decathlon, um, been an All-American football player and a Major League Baseball player. That trifecta is unparalleled. But I also, uh, I wouldn't have written it just for that. I saw it as an opportunity to write about the Native American experience through his life. He was, a sac- he was from the Sac and Fox Nation. And uh, so that was an important part of the story. How important was was it for you to tell that part of the story? We, we, you know, we all know, I think a lot of people know that Jim Thorpe is this amazing athlete. And that's the thread that goes through his life. But how important and what did you learn most and what were you most con- concerned about when you talk about the, the Native American experience as, as told through Jim Thorpe? Uh, it's the center of the book. I mean, you know, the the the. Uh, the sports story sort of serves as the skeleton for, for a story to illuminate American history. Um, you know, Thorpe's life really um, depicts what happened to Native Americans. He was born in 1887, a year when Congress enacted the Dawes Act, which was an attempt to take away Native American land, um, their communal lands, and make them small property owners. Um, that's what opened up the Oklahoma land rush land. It was Indian territory that the white people took. Uh, his, his key um, years of athleticism were at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, which was the other part of sort of the assimilation process. Um, the motto of that school was kill the Indian, save the man, uh, meaning take away their religion, their culture, their language, cut their hair dress them up in cavalry uniforms and try to make them as white as possible as the only means that certain white savior types thought they could save the, the, the Native American race. Um, so throughout Thorpe's life, you see these various elements of the ways that, that white society tried to basically control and or eliminate uh, Native Americans. And for all the challenges with Carlisle, it also became the platform for him yes. to be discovered along the way. You know, you've said he was 16, he was 5'5 five, five and 120 pounds interested in hunting and fishing. All of a sudden he's at Carlisle and this electric athleticism that you talk about in the book comes out, uh, whether it's football, track, ice skating or ballroom dancing. Tell us more about that. No, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, life is full of contradictions. And so uh, the Carlisle Indian School, yes, it, it was a dehumanizing experience in, in many ways, but it also provided the platform to Jim Thorpe for Jim Thorpe to show his incredible athletic skills. Um, he did. I was shocked when I saw how small he was when he got there. He filled out pretty quickly. And by 1907, um, he, he was discovered first in track and field. Um, he, he hadn't done any athletics yet, and he's walking across the track and saw the high jumpers um, with the bar at six feet, and he, he jumped over it in his overalls. And quickly, Pop Warner, the coach at, at Carlisle, dragged him onto the, the track team, and soon he was playing football and, 
and uh, became the star of that team for the next several, many years. Um, he he had this all around, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, it's a picture of Thorpe at the Stockholm Olympics, and he just radiates this incredible electricity of an athletic, uh, amazing figure. Um, he, he could do everything. You know, just in football, for instance, not only was he playing 60 minutes as a great left halfback, and a defensive back slash linebacker. He was also a terrific punter. You know, he could punt at 70, 80 yards uh, routinely, and a place kicker, and even a drop kicker. So, he, you know, anything on a football field, Jim Thorpe could do. You know, you mentioned Pop Warner. Most people know Pop Warner as, as Pop Warner Youth Football, but Pop yeah. Warner is an integral figure in, in the life of Jim Thorpe and and in this book in particular, can you tell us a little bit what you learned about Pop Warner? Pop Warner was a brilliant, inventive, innovative football coach. You know, he really helped develop the forward pass in early football, the single wing formation, the double wing. He had all kinds of inventions of even how to wear cleats and, and all of that. So he was instrumental in the greatness of those Carlisle Indian Industrial School teams, which could defeat um, all of the great schools on the East Coast, which were then the powerhouses. You know, it's hard to think of today, but Yale and Harvard and, and Penn and, and, and Army and Syracuse, um, were, Princeton were, were the football powerhouses and little Carlisle could beat them all. So that was Pop Warner as a coach. Um, but he was also um, a less than noble human being. And at the point of Jim Thorpe's major crisis, um, when his medals were taken away from him, Pop Warner, who knew precisely what Thorpe was doing playing minor league baseball, lied about it to save his own reputation. And not long after that, um, the entire football team turned against him, saying that he was mentally and physically abusive to, to the Native American players um, at, during a congressional investigation. So he slipped out of town, went to Pitt, where he again was an incredibly successful coach, and then Stanford. And as you said, now, you know, youth football is Pop Warner football. But his his days at Carlisle were great as a coach and less than far less than great as a human being. That was educating to me. I did not know about the dichotomy of Pop Warner. And uh, I, I said to Jeff while we were prepping, I didn't realize he bet on games that Thorpe played it and said that he was seeing his stockbroker. That, that yeah, was... I mean, it's incredible. He, he bet on games. He's, you know, he would sell uh, tickets to the, the Carlisle tickets in the hotel lobbies. He paid his players, um, which is another thing about, you know, when he feigned ignorance of what Jim Thorpe playing minor league baseball. I mean, all of the players at Carlisle were, or the best players were getting paid for years before that. Um, small amounts of money, but about as much as Jim was getting playing baseball. So, um, yeah, he was a disreputable figure in many ways and a brilliant coach. So let's take a step back before his medals are stripped. The Olympics are yeah. sort of like a means to an end for him. He wanted to be a coach. How did the yes. Olympics come about? And then the success of what you call the greatest single year any athlete ever had in 1912. Well, he came back, he was recruited back to Carlisle after playing minor league baseball and became, in 1911 and 1912, um, the greatest athlete in America. He, you know, he, he was a dominant track and field star um, in 1911 um, and 1912. And, 
And he really came back in part to train for those Olympics. So Pop Warner told him that if you become an Olympic star, you have a chance to make more money, um, you know, and become a coach. Um, so he he went to uh, Stockholm with Warner and with another um, Carlisle, a great athlete, a long distance runner named Louis Tuanema, um, who, by the way, won a silver medal in Stockholm. And during the, those uh, Olympics, I mean, think about it. Thorpe competed in 15 events, you know, in two weeks. The, the, the pentathlon is five events. The decathlon is 10 events. At one point during the decathlon, his shoes were misplaced and he competed in a couple of events um, with shoes that he found, uh, you know, basically in the trash. They were different sizes. He had to wear two pairs of socks on one of his shoes. He still won that event. Um, so it was it was extraordinary. You know, decathlons are hard to rate by different generations, not just because of the differences, as I said, in training and, and equipment and, and diet and all of that, but also because the scoring systems are different. Um, so the one thing you can say about Jim Thorpe in – the 1912 Olympics is that he dominated the field in a way that no one else has before or since in terms of points. Um, And uh, then he came back home uh, to Carlisle and had this spectacular senior season um, as a football player. When the, the, the highlight of that year was what I call the greatest act of athletic retribution in American history. When the Carlisle Indians thumped the Army 27 to 6, uh, you know, on a level playing field at last. The with Indians with Dwight Eisenhower on that field for Army, correct? Eisenhower was a linebacker for Army. Omar Bradley was a freshman on the bench. He, um, he comes across, Thorpe comes across so many people in his life. I mean, he was on a team with Patton. He yes. played against Eisenhower. Um, I, it's just amazing all the different people that he comes across along his trail. He was on a team with Avery Brundage, too, who was another decathlete, you know, the, the villain of so many of my books, the horrible uh, future president of the International Olympic Committee, was a decathlete. I always thought of him as this sort of fat cat potentate, but it turns out he, he was at least a mediocre decathlete who by the way, quit after eight events in those Olympics. Um, but yes, Thorpe's life runs through, you know, not just uh, Patton and Bradley, Omar Bradley and uh, and Dwight Eisenhower, um, but also, you know, in baseball, he played for John McGraw. He played with Christy Mathewson. He traveled the world on a world tour with Charles Comiskey and, and uh, several Hall of Famers, Tris Speaker and Wahoo Sam Crawford. Um, he went out to Hollywood as a bit actor for many years and, and acted in 70 movies with just about every famous actor from from uh, John Wayne to, to Bob Hope. And then and then he um, was direct. He, the movie about his life was directed by Michael Curtiz, who had directed Casablanca. He was played by Burt Lancaster. Um, it's just incredible to see all the people that went through his life. Sat in the dugout with Babe Ruth. Played baseball at age 45 with a traveling team that played against the Negro League stars, the Pittsburgh Crawfords of Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. I mean, it's just everybody's there. Yeah, and and yet that that minor league career is is kind of the the, the sad beginnings of of yeah. the end as, of as far as taking away his medals. And you talk a lot about in the book about that minor league time where he was making thirty dollars a month. What what happened during that time, and what was what was the motivation for taking away the medal simply because he was playing minor league baseball, which everybody already knew about? 
You know, it's true. I mean, he, the minor league baseball in that era, um, hundreds of college athletes were going to play summer baseball. Most of them, many of them were playing under aliases. Eisenhower himself played under the name Wilson, the Kansas State League. Um, there were so many aliases in the Eastern Carolina League where Thorpe played for the Rocky Mount Railroaders and Fayetteville Highlanders. And it was called the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. But Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. His name was in the papers every day for two summers, you know, in Raleigh and all the other places of that league. Um, so it wasn't a secret. And not only did Pop Warner know what Jim Thorpe was doing, but but Thorpe and many other uh Carlisle Indian athletes were recruited by one of Pop Warner's best buddies up in Pennsylvania to play in that league. And also James E. Sullivan, who was the head of the Amateur Athletic Union and the American Olympic Committee, was also on the Carlisle Athletic Advisory Board. He too knew what Thorpe was doing, and yet he and Warner both feigned innocence after the story, quote-unquote, broke in the Worcester Telegram shortly after the Olympics in January of 1913. And they're the ones who decided that he would have to return his medals and and that the records would be stricken, um, even though technically, even, even, you know, morally, I think it was horrible what happened to Jim. But technically, it was wrong. There was a, there was a rule in the Olympic records that said that any challenge of amateurism had to be made within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. This broke six months later. So you, you can make all the arguments about how how stupid the amateur rules were and how misapplied they were unfairly to various people. But even technically, Jim Thorpe shouldn't have lost his medals or records. He goes from ticker tape parades on his way home to six months later being stripped of his medals. Talk about yeah. how that impacted him losing his medals and how long did it take him to actually accept that it happened? You know, in many ways, Jim Thorpe's life was sort of uh, defined by loss. Um, he was a twin. He was born a twin, and his twin brother, Charlie, died when, when they were nine years old. Um, he was orphaned at age 16. And then came the, uh, you know, later, uh, his first son, Jim Thorpe Jr., died during the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, but losing those medals would haunt him for the rest of his life. Um, you know, at first, he... he he was able to get over it for two reasons. One is that the sporting press, for all of its flaws, basically defended Thorpe. Almost every major sports writer was on Thorpe's side. I mean, secondly, he went off to play Major League Baseball right away. Um, but as he, as as his athletic talents diminished, I would say, he started to, to ruminate more and more about the unfairness of what happened to him and started to campaign pretty hard um, with so many supporters uh, to try to get those medals back. Um, it never happened during his lifetime. Uh, the first half-hearted effort to restore him came in 1983, um, before the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, when Juan Antonio Samarak, the IOC president, um, presented replicas of his medals to his children. Um, but he was not declared the, the winner of those, of those medals. He was he was the, sort of the co-winner with the second-place finishers. And it wasn't really until last month, July of 2022, 
110 years too late that all of Thorpe's records were finally and fully restored. And now you have um, the fact that, you know, we talk about Bill Russell and, and his impact on society. Yes. Jim Thorpe didn't shy away from his being in a Native American and even became a leader within the Native American Actors Association. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his, his activism and his import to, to Native Americans and Native American culture and how, how the rest of us see Native Americans? Yeah, I mean, Thorpe is a symbol to the entire Native American population. And I view sort of his perseverance, despite all the obstacles he faced or put in his own way, including a struggle with alcohol, as sort of symbolic of the struggle of his people. You know, there was a point in 1915 when the most popular statue in America was called the End of the Trail. And it it, it showed a Indian on horseback stooped. Um, and defeated, you know, the, it was supposed to be the end of the race that manifest destiny had prevailed, and and the the Native American race was gone. Um, it didn't happen, you know. Uh, Native Americans went from two hundred fifty thousand at the low point to to millions today. They survived and prevailed, and in a sense, they see Jim Thorpe as a symbol of that survivalist uh, survivalism uh, notion. Um, and you're right; he, he his most active period. Um, identifying as a as a Native American leader came in Hollywood, where he got he got there in 1929 and was there through much of the rest of his life, and for most of the 1930s into the 1940s, um, he was on the edges of the studio system and became the leader of the 200 or 300 Native Americans who were all trying to get acting parts or bit parts of extras in movies, um, and he was really pushing for two things. One is that that the studios hire real Native Americans as opposed to white people dressed in grease paint to play Indians. And secondly, that they stop portraying them so negatively in the movies. And that was really the, the key to Jim Thorpe's activism was, was in Hollywood. It was something that he passed down to many of his children. His daughter, Grace Thorpe, was the spokesperson for the Native Americans who, who took over Alcatraz later. Um, and many of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren are, are Indian activists in one way or another. Even the movie about himself was played by a white man. It just yes, goes, Burt Lancaster. Yeah, who was, you know, Lancaster was a good athlete. Um, he was a, an acrobat, and among other things. He was 37 when he played Jim Thorpe, you know, including playing Thorpe at age 16 going to Carlisle Indian <laughs> School. Um, and, they, you know, he had to use makeup as well. Um, he didn't look or try to pretend that he looked like Jim Thorpe. Uh, I consider that movie sympathetic and completely wrong. It was Pop Warner's <laughs> version of Jim Thorpe's story, correct? Yeah, Warner, Warner is the narrator of the movie. Yeah. And at the key points in the movie, you get the impression through Warner that if only Jim Thorpe had followed um, Warner's uh, instructions and assimilated more easily into white society, he wouldn't have had the troubles he had. Pop Warner, the guy who turned against him at his key point, the crisis of his life. As you were researching this book, how surprised were you about the role of Pop Warner within uh, Jim Thorpe's life and how he did turn on him? I had, I knew nothing about it. Um, so, you know, I try to approach every book, even if I know a lot about something, 
like I knew a lot about Bill Clinton before I wrote about him. But nonetheless, I try to uh, say I know nothing. I'll start from scratch to get rid of my presuppositions. Um, but in this case with Pop Warner, I really all I knew was what you know. A lot of people know that that youth football is named after the guy, you know, um, and that he was a successful football coach. But I, you know, when I the first revelation to me was when I I got a hold of the uh, transcripts of the congressional hearings held in 1914 uh, investigating the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And Pop Warner is the central figure in those investigations. And that's where it was revealed all of the many uh, things that he did wrong, you know, from from uh, betting on games to selling tickets to abusing his players physically and mentally. And then I started to put together how he, how he handled Thorpe at the time of, of the um, medals being taken away. And that picture added up to something that was um, less than flattering. I definitely learned a bunch about Pop Warner following this book. Uh, last one for me. In his passing, there was struggle there too. Well, it wasn't uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Thorpe wanted to be buried in Oklahoma near his birthplace. He's not buried there. Can you explain to our listeners how Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania came about? It's a bizarre story. Um, He was with his third wife at that point, Patsy Thorpe, who was his business manager, his promoter, um, part, you know, well-motivated trying to help him get his due and also part grifter. And so after he died, um, he he, he, he was taken back to Oklahoma where he was going to be buried. And as a matter of fact, they were in the middle of a Sack and Fox important spiritual ceremony um, with his with his body when Patsy Thorpe entered the picture and took his, his coffin away. Um, she was upset with how Oklahoma was treating him and what, what they would build, well, how they would build a mausoleum, how much money they would pay for it. And so she started sort of looking for the highest bidder, um, Tulsa, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Finally, she's in Philadelphia. And this is just so weird. She sees on television a story about these two struggling towns, twin towns in the Pocono Mountains, Mock Chunk and East Mock Chunk, Pennsylvania. And she came up with this plan. She was kind of like, I compare her to Harold Hill and the Music Man. She goes up there and persuades them that if they change their name to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, she can bring not only his body, but have a a college named after Jim Thorpe, um, a hospital, um, perhaps the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All of these benefits would come to this place. They changed their name. Um, Jim Thorpe is there. You know, his bones are in a place uh, named for him, but where he had never set foot in his entire life. And his sons... There was somewhat of a disagreement among the family. He had seven children, three daughters and four sons. The daughters came to accept the fact that he was there and did some of their own ceremonies in, in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and just uh, accepted it. The sons fought hard against it and filed suit, and they won in the first court, federal court. Then it was overturned on appeal, and the Supreme Court um, upheld the appeal. So he's not going anywhere. He, uh, you know, my, I have nothing against the people of Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, um, but I think he belongs in Oklahoma, where he was from. 
Jeff knew that. I was fascinated to learn that. I, I had no idea about that tale as well. The book is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. David Marinus, let our listeners know where they can get the book to read for themselves. It's worth their time. Well, thank you. I hope it's available everywhere at, at, at your local independent bookstore, at Barnes & Noble, on Amazon. Um, it's, um, it's out there, believe me. Well, we wish you best of luck with the latest biography. Thank you so much for giving us the time and for telling the story. Okay, thank you guys. And I love talking with you. Jeff, what an interesting conversation. I, I don't know the last time I learned If you that do much. say so yourself. Well, I do, yeah, right. I'm critiquing our own interviews. That's kind of narcissistic uh-huh. of me. But I, for myself, I'm not the historian of the show. You know more than I do. But I did not know a lot. Wait, of the are, things are you going now? Gonna I'm say, not saying you're old, Jeff. You pay ex- attention to history. That's you know, exactly what you were so saying. Insecure about your age uh-huh. that it wouldn't come back on me that I'm making insulting comments. Okay, so just 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 so we're clear, I was not there during the 1912. I didn't but, think you were there in 1912. Okay. I didn't think you had anything to do with taking his medals. But I. <laughs> I was fascinated by the way that he put together that story and told Jim Thorpe's story, I can't even speak, through the eyes of Jim Thorpe, as opposed to the other ways that story's been told through his lifetime, through his coaches or the Olympic Committee or something else. To me, the saddest part about it was is this this larger-than-life figure, Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes of, of any time, by all accounts, was taken advantage by so many people and betrayed by so many people. But to me, what comes across at the end at the end of this is he still persevered, and he was still doing things that today matter. The fact that what he was doing with the way that Native Americans were being portrayed in films that far back, something that we're still dealing with today, but he was a pioneer in it. Shows, you know, the kind of Jackie Robinson inspirational figure that he was. Yeah, he really, for the Native American community, for America itself, at a time when they were trying to strip Americans of their Native American history. Of their identity. Of their identity. Of of changing the way that they look. He rose from that effort to advocate for his identity, for Mm -hmm. advocate for his people, and use the platform, even though he was wronged along the way, to make sure that other people were able to get it right. I mean, that that's the ultimate definition of success, regardless of the challenges you face. He would have been a great interview for our show. Yeah, he would mm-hmm. have. I don't think we're going to get him, though. No, okay. All right, let's leave it there, Jeff. We'll finish up for today. We'll be back live next week. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.